Leave nothing but footprints, take nothing but horcruxes. You are listening to the Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club for Leave No Trace campers. I know Harry Potter, said Dean, and I reckon he's the real thing, the chosen one, or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, there's a lot we'd like to believe he's that son, said Dirk, me included. But where is he? Run for it by the looks of things. And you know, the Prophet made a pretty good case against him. The Prophet, scoffed Ted. You deserve to be lied to if you're still reading that, Mark Dirk. You want the facts. Try the quibbler. I'm Heather Price Wright. And I'm Alex Dallenberg. Hello, we're back post Twilight. So hopefully that was an enjoyable little interlude for you all in this the spookiest of seasons. Now we're past spooky season and into a time of abundance and giving thanks, which is the opposite of the chapters we are reading this week. It's also not, it's not Christmas season yet. No, Thanksgiving. Yeah, no one is allowed, you're not allowed to play Christmas music. You're allowed to do whatever you goddamn please. Are you kidding me? No, I have no rules about the kind of entertainment people engage in any time of year. I just think you gotta keep some of your Christmas powder dry, right? If... All I Want for Christmas is You brings you joy in fucking June. Listen to it. No, I'm I'm 0% in. I don't like it when stores take Christmas stuff out because well, it just lot, feels that's a battle we lost very assaultive. Yeah. But in terms of people individually experiencing joy leading up to a holiday, yes, do that. Honestly, there's way too little joy right now. I was just shocked when I, I saw like so many posts saying, oh, Halloween's almost over. That means it's Christmas time. And I was thinking, no. It's menu planning time for Thanksgiving. Well, we have a lot of menu planning. The Christmas season starts Black Friday to me. Maybe that's very capitalist as well. That's very capitalist. Not Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving. I think the Christmas season is in your heart, which is what the Muppets have taught me. That's true. Okay, well, it is Christmas in these chapters. Wherever you find love, it feels like Christmas. That's your favorite Christmas movie. Oh my God. We might just do an episode on the Muppet Christmas Carol for a Christmas special. I don't want to promise anything but now that that has come into my mind i'm pretty sure it's gonna happen could we make fun of it though yeah michael kane is absurd (laughs) he's perfect okay i haven't even told you what chapters we're reading there's a lot of menu planning we are reading the chapters called the goblin's revenge and godric's hollow in harry potter and the deathly hallows you will hear alex being a grinch in this episode, apparently. I'm not a Grinch. I'm just, to everything, there is a season. Wherever you find love. Okay, fair enough. It feels like Christmas. I'm actually not a huge Christmas person. I just don't resent people for experiencing joy during whatever time of year they need that joy. Also, it's dark as fuck. So you know what? Listen to whatever music gets you through these days. That's true. We're, 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 we are recording this on the first, uh, we're recording this on the first day of uh, standard time. The clocks just fell back, so. So my seasonal affective disorder is whooshing toward me like a veritable dementor. Listen to Christmas music if you must. You will also hear spoilers and cursing and some adult themes in addition to seasonal affective disorder. This week's adult themes are meal planning, cabin fever, antiquities fraud, fugitives, and fittingly, holiday depression. Alex, what happened this week? In this week's chapters, Harry walks into the woods and finds a gnarled old tree to bury Mad-Eye's eye. Which is the stupidest thing he does maybe the whole book. Dumb fucking move, man. Keep this thing. This is one of the great magical objects of our time. Also, this is this should be a hallow, also, frankly. 
Also, you're spending like half an hour or more every time you set up camps casting defensive spells. I don't know, maybe it would be nice to have an all-seeing eye to Jesus. look for fucking intruders. Also, he marks the spot with a cross, which takes us all the way back to the first book where we were like, are wizards Christian? I think I think they're they're like culturally Christian or A cross something. is I don't not know. They're culturally like... Christian. A cross is religiously Christian. Okay. We don't need to linger here, but like, I don't know, put the fucking Deathly Hallows or something. Well, no, because that's like a swastika. It's complicated. Okay, it's complicated, as we learn. Okay, uh, well, this was the first paragraph of the first this page. This is the first thing that pops into Harry's mind. I think it's fine. But also, it's the stupidest thing in the universe to not keep this eye. <laughs> this thing is so dead useful. Also, it's not like it's Mad-Eye's literal eye. It's not his body part. It's just the thing he owned. Yeah, and right? you could use it to see shit. Like, it seems like a machine and not his body part. It can see through, like, stone walls. Keep this thing. Good God. I mean, Harry just, he just, he's always, he's leading with his heart, you know? Okay, well, in this case, he should have led with his fucking brain. <laughs> anyway, go on. So after burying Mad-Eye's eye, Harry goes into town for food, but he finds it crawling with Dementors. He finds to his horror that he can't cast a Patronus. Harry feels deeply ashamed and inadequate, so basically he's suffering from ED in this chapter. Enchantment dysfunction. I hate you. <laughs> Ron is enraged because he's hungry as fuck. They're just eating nothing but, like, mushrooms and, like, fish that they don't really know how to prepare. Hermione realizes that wearing the Horcrux is the problem. Harry takes the Horcrux locket off, and he realizes he feels much better. So that's probably why he wasn't able to cast the Patronus, but still, he doesn't want to just leave the Horcrux laying around. So the trio resolve to take turns carrying it, even though if you wear the locket, it makes you feel like shit and super depressed. So that's a bummer. The trio's moods shift wildly based on whether they've had anything to eat Ron is especially irritable. Harry, though, is kind of used to it because he didn't get a lot of food growing up. So the Dursleys left him with some practical survival skills. I think we call that grit. <laughs> Harry does have grit. Harry has grit. That is actually one of Harry's chief qualities. Growth mindset. He doesn't have fixed mindset. <laughs> As all of the sort of like... Instead of pseudo-academic babble goes. Instead of becoming an Auror, Harry just should have become a motivational speaker. Yeah, he's a perfect TED Talker. <laughs> we would call him a thought leader these days. I know. He should actually just be a teacher. I, but cl Clearly, an educator. Is, yes, it's, he is destined to be an educator, and it is very stupid that he becomes a fucking cop. The trio endlessly debate where to look for the next Horcrux. They check out the orphanage where... Lovo was raised, but it's gone now. I think it was, like, replaced with an office building. Not an important detail. Gentrification added again. Yeah, that was, like, probably a historic uh, orphanage, but almost certainly haunted as fuck. Well, yeah, by all the pets that Voldemort murdered. Just mouse ghosts Ooh. scurrying around. Harry catches Ron and Hermione secretly talking together, probably about him, so there's some intergroup tensions. 
One night, Ron is especially grumpy. He complains that his mom can make good food appear from thin air. Why can't they? They're all eating this, like, disgusting, charred, gray fish. Hermione snaps at him that your mom can't produce food out of thin air. No one can. Food, she says, is one of the first five principal exceptions to Gamp's law of elemental transfiguration, answering a question that I believe we raised, like, a couple episodes ago. Basically... You can't make food out of nothing. You can summon it if you know where it is. You can transform it, and you can increase the quantity of it if you've got some already. So, Ron's mom was still, like, procuring food, and obviously, like, the house elves at Hogwarts were, like, making food. And Anyway, Ron's just fucking cosseted. And hangry. Yeah, Ron is hangry in these chapters. Maybe he's not cosseted. That's probably unfair to Ron. Anyway, we will discuss He's this. only cosseted compared to Harry, who experienced extreme deprivation and abuse. This so is true. Ron just had a childhood where he was treated like a child. Hermione tells off Ron and says that she's the only one and says that she's the one who's always left to sort out the food situation, probably because she's a woman. Ron says, no, it's because you're the one who's supposed to be the best at magic. Not really a defense, dude. Hermione then tells Ron that he can do the cooking tomorrow. Spoiler alert, he does not. He super doesn't. Ron doesn't cook. During this argument, Harry tells them all to shut up. He hears something outside. They use extendable ears to eavesdrop on a group of hikers, I don't know, wanderers, people in the fucking forest who are outside the tent along the riverbank where they're camped. The group includes a pair of goblins, Ted Tonks, Dirk Cresswell, who you might remember was outed as a muggle-born in the Ministry of Magic. He used to work for the Goblin Liaison Office. And ba-ba-ba, motherfucking Dean Thomas. They're all on the run from the new Voldemort Death Eater regime, and they go fishing for salmon. Fishing is super easy if you're a wizard because you just say, Osseo Salmon. Which... Why didn't the trio do that? Well, Hermione says that Harry was the one who caught the fish. Maybe he just doesn't know the names of fish. That actually makes sense. It seems like the goblins in particular have a better sense of the kind of like natural world. And so they were like, oh, it's salmon season. Osseo (laughs) salmon. Harry's just like, Osseo fishy fish. I also like that the goblin language is called gobbledygook. That's a favorite thing in here (laughs) of mine. It's a sweet little detail. While the trio are eavesdropping on the group's conversation, we learn that Dean is on the run, not because he's a muggle-born. We learn that Dean doesn't know if he's a muggle-born or not because his dad left his mom when he was a kid, but he has no proof that he's a full-blood wizard, so he is on the lam. And Dirk Cresswell was able to escape before he was sent to Azkaban by, like, overpowering a confounded or imperious Dalish, who's, like, constantly getting his, like, shit wrecked. Dalish is an idiot. Yeah. (laughs) Also, maybe this is too controversial a take, but is it fucked up and racist that one of the only black characters in this entire series has an absent father? Yeah. I don't Uh, love that. I I don't know what to say about it. Uh, yeah. It's pretty racist. That's... Even in the wizarding world, apparently we have really negative and nasty stereotypes about black fatherhood. Doesn't Blaze Zabini have some, like, situation as well? Yeah, his mom's a black widow. Oh, yeah. She just kills her husbands. Whoa. Which is different. Anyway. But also, violent and broken home. Dang, so, dude. 
Come on, J.K. Rowling. All right. Jesus Christ. What the fuck? Um, right? Isn't his mom like an infamous yeah. murderess? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, that's kind of cool. It's not actually cool, but that's a good story. The fact that Dean's dad is just not in the picture feels like a stereotype J.K. Rowling did not need to invoke here with literally the only black Gryffindor besides, I think, Lee Jordan. Oh, that's true. But we don't know much about Lee. Well, Lee becomes important in a few chapters. Oh, shit. He does. Never mind. Yeah. Um. <laughs> anyway, uh, also, Ted asks the goblins why they're on the run. He says, I had the impression that goblins were on the side of you-know-who on the whole. One of the goblins says, you had a false impression... We don't take sides. This is a wizard's war. Both of the goblins are in hiding because they turned down requests by the the new powers that be. Yeah, one of the goblins, Gorunk, Grunk, Gor- Oh God, what the fuck is his name? We wrote it down. Gornuk. Gruntface. <laughs> Gornuk. Gornuk says he refused what I considered an impertinent request. Duties ill befitting the dignity of my race. I'm not a house elf. The other goblin who is bu 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 motherfucking Griphook, Harry's banker, who you might remember from Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Griphook says he was in a situ- he was in a similar situation. Gringotts is no longer on this under the sole control of the goblins and I recognize no wizarding master. Griphook says he got a small revenge before he left, before he went on the run, though. Severus Snape, now the headmaster of Hogwarts, asked him to take the Sword of Gryffindor out of Hogwarts and lock it up in Gringotts after some students tried to steal it, led by, we learn, Ginny Weasley. The sword was a fake, though, Griphook realized, but he didn't bother telling Snape. So whatever fucking sword was in Snape's office was not the real sword of Gryffindor. This group also discusses the subject of Harry Potter while they're sitting around eating some delicious smelling salmon. Because I guess goblins or whoever is cooking this is just way better preparing fish than the trio. Dirk says he's not sure what to believe about Harry Potter. He's not sure he believes the rumors that Snape killed Dumbledore. Dean sticks up for Harry and says, I know him. I He's the real deal. He's the chosen one or whatever you want to call him. Ted tells Dirk to stop reading the Daily Prophet and start reading The Quibbler, which under Xenophilius Lovegood is instructing readers to help Harry Potter however possible if they want to defeat the Dark Arts. Dirk, though, wonders where Harry is. He says if he's the chosen one, shouldn't be he be out there rallying support? Dean and Ted say that it's, like, an accomplishment, just like not being captured and killed by the Death Eaters, which, you know, based on what we've seen so far, fair. So, Dean and Ted are on an excellent adventure. <laughs> After this group packs up, uh, the trio reel in the extendable ears. Hermione immediately pulls out the painting of Phineas Nigellus, the former Hogwarts headmaster, which she had stuffed in her bag to keep from spying on them in Grinwald Place. They interrogate Phineas about the Sword of Gryffindor, but before doing that, they conjure a blindfold and put it around his face. Is that like a paint blindfold now? Like, how do they put this blindfold in the painting? We just can't go down this road. I know, they don't paint it into the painting. They just, like, 
conjure it within the world uh, of the painting. I, I don't know. Anyway, there's some fucking metaphysics there. But they interrogate Phineas about the sword. Phineas is like a dick in a hilarious way. They ask if, like, maybe the sword was taken out for cleaning. Phineas says goblin-forged armor doesn't require cleaning. It, it repels dust, and it only imbibes that which strengthens it. Phineas says the last time the sword was taken out of its case, it was because Dumbledore used it to open a ring. So, holy shit, they realize that the sword of Gryffindor can be used to destroy motherfucking Horcruxes. Uh, because it imbibed the Basilisk Venom, which destroyed Tom Riddle's diary in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. I just want to blow up Alex's spot briefly. He tried to say that the first time, and he said Basilisk Venom, which was a very funny Spoonerism, so I wanted you all to know it. Should I do a... I should do a whole summary in Spoonerism sometime. No, that sounds awful. That would be hilarious. People would love it. Like, um, Lurdy Dies which the capital steps do. That is a very obscure reference. That is a reference. deep pull. My dad will get it. He will. Also, Ginny and her accomplices, which were Neville and Luna, are fine. They were punished, but, you know, they weren't, like, physically damaged. They just got, like, extra bad detention or whatever Snape is doing these days. Harry and Hermione feel triumphant about this new revelation, but Ron is not having it. He says... Ugh, Jesus fucking Christ. He doesn't say Jesus fucking Christ. He's like, I'm not, don't expect me to skip around because there's like some other damn thing we have to find. Just add it to the list of other stuff we don't know. Uh, there's a, this leads to a furious row between Ron and Harry. Ron says to Harry, we thought you knew what you were doing, but you don't know what you're fucking doing. And Ron accuses Harry of not caring what happens to Ginny or his family. Harry is like filled with hatred at Ron and they both look at each other as though they're seeing each other clearly for the first time and eventually Ron fucking storms out into the night leaving the Horcrux. He was wearing the Horcrux this whole time. You sort of undersold what just happened. Ron leaves them. Yeah, Ron bails. Like, leaves the expedition. Yeah. Says he's going home. He deserts. Yes, he deserts. He's fucking AWOL. Uh, it's very dramatic, but that's what happens. True. He also asks Hermione to come with him. But Hermione says no. She's staying with Harry and then goes to bed and cries a lot. Understandably. Yeah. So they hang around by this fucking river for the next few days. Both of them are kind of hoping that Ron will show up again, but Harry realizes it's a lost cause. Also, he wouldn't be able to find the tent again because they've protected it with all these enchantments. Harry spends the next day fuming about Ron and also Dumbledore, who... He realizes didn't really leave him a lot to go on, Horcrux-wise, it turns out. Hermione spends a lot of time crying and poring over her copy of Tales of Beetle the Bard, which Dumbledore left her. They also spend time picking Phineas's brain, even though he, like, said he wasn't going to come back to the painting because they, like, blindfolded him and he bumped his head or whatever. He just keeps, he keeps coming back to the painting, and they're kind of glad to have him around because it's, like some extra company so they pick his brain about what's happening at hogwarts and uh he tries to wheedle information about their whereabouts out of them because he's like a huge snape stan because snape is the first slytherin headmaster of hogwarts since phineas black at some point hermione makes bolognese so ron should have stuck around for that <laughs> One night, Hermione shows Harry that she found an odd sign drawn in the book by someone else, not the illustrator. It's Grindelwald's sign. It's a triangle with like an something that looks like the eye in the middle of it. We all know what this looks like. 
Alex has a t-shirt from Target with this sign on it. Yeah. So that's cool. I mean, it was like $8.99 or whatever. It's actually a pretty cool t-shirt. You'd be a fool not to buy it. <laughs> but at this point in the book, we don't know what it means. Harry tells Hermione that he wants to go to Godric's Hollow. To his surprise, she agrees. She says Godric's Hollow is named after Godric Gryffindor, who was born there. So she thinks maybe, just maybe, Dumbledore has hidden the Sword of Gryffindor there. Hermione says that lots of wizards moved there after the Statute of Secrecy went into effect in 1689 because they formed these, like, underground wizarding communities. Also, Hermione's the only one who's read a goddamn book. I can't believe that it doesn't occur to Harry Potter that Godric's Hollow is named after Godric Gryffindor. Maybe he thinks Godric is just, like, a common wizard name. Like, it's the wizard version no. of John Harry just something. doesn't pay attention. No. She when asks he's him. Like, when he's like, what do you mean Gryffindor? from there she's like it's fucking named after him <laughs> it's called godric's hollow harry and then she asks him she says did you ever open a history of magic and he's basically like nah uh, <laughs> she did all their fucking history homework for them yeah it's unreasonable what the fuck they should have harry should have been held back a year but whatever Anyway, Harry doesn't really care about Hermione's theories that the sword is there. He just wants to go see where his parents lived. They also think it might be possible that Dumbledore left the sword with Bathilda Bagshot, the author of the History of Magic. So they're going to go to Godric's Hollow and, like, basically take a Bathilda Bankshot. Oh my gosh, that was good. Hilarious. <laughs> You're proud of that one. I am proud of my that one. It'd be hilarious if Batilda Bagshot, in her younger days, was a basketball player, and that was her nickname, Batilda Bankshot. I think at this point we've overtrodden this joke. Are there Bankshots in Quidditch? Could she have been a Quidditch player? I don't know There's what a Bankshot bank bank is. is. A Bankshot in basketball is when it goes off the backboard. So I guess it could... But it's more of like a pool thing. You do like a Bankshot. Okay, it's like go off on. the side. I don't... Bankshots, Batilda Bankshot. It's a funny joke. Everyone laugh. <laughs> They use Polyjuice Potion to disguise themselves as muggles and apparate to Godric's Hollow. They sure must, They sure seem to have a lot of fucking Polyjuice Potion. Yeah, I have a lot of questions about where it's coming from. Remember, it's very hard to brew. Remember how fucking long it took them to make It takes Polyjuice the potion? entire first half of the book. Chamber of Secrets. In Chamber and of Secrets. And now they're just like, ah, oh, should we just randomly disguise ourselves? They must have had... Did we... Am I not remembering some part in this book where Hermione says, oh yeah, I packed like 10 gallons of Polyjuice Potion? No, but that seems like it must be what happened. <sighs> anyway, this is just like their all-purpose. I mean, it's really useful, yeah, clearly, but they do use but, it like I mean, four times yeah. in one book. It's a little bit redundant. And then they use it again in Cursed Child. Oh my god, that's right. And again, they don't brew it. They just have it. They just have it on hand. I... I don't know, man. The whole deal is that it's one of the most complicated potions wizards can make. Yeah, you can't just pick this shit up at like, like the corner pharmacy. There's a huge plot point in an early book where Hermione's like, this thing is basically impossible to brew. And then it turns her into a cat. Yeah, that's fucked and up. And now too. they're just like, oh, let's just grab some fucking hair from people and we're ready to go, man. They just hang out outside like barbershops or whatever. I don't Ooh. know. Okay, anyway. But yeah, I have that question too. I don't know where this is all coming from. <laughs> There's so much Polyjuice Potion. So they apparate to Godric's Hollow. Uh, Jim Dale changes his voice to just some random other British accents. It's very disorienting because they're disguised. Oh. And their voices change. Wow, that's deep tracks. I know. Jim Dale pays the fuck attention. He does, anyway. It is Christmas Eve, judging by the sounds of carols coming from the church and various merriment in the local pubs. 
they walk by an old war memorial, which, as they approach it, transforms into a statue of James, Lily, and Harry. So, still kind of is a war memorial. From the Wizarding War. Harry and Hermione also walk through an old cemetery. Uh, the, the tombstones have the names of old wizarding families, like the Abbots. They find the grave of Kendra Dumbledore and her daughter, Ariana, with an inscription, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Is that a clue? That's a clue, right? It must right? be a clue, because Harry thinks a to clue, himself... A clue, a clue! Because Harry thinks to himself that Dumbledore is clearly the person responsible for the inscription, because he would have been, like, the head of the household after Kendra died. Harry feels very bitter about the fact that Dumbledore never shared this part of his life with him. They both have the, this connection to Godric's Hollow, and they have family buried in this graveyard. He thinks we could have visited together. That would have been a bonding experience. Uh, but it never happened. They find an ancient grave marked Ignotus that has the triangular mark on it. Again, Another I clue. don't remember. Another clue. A clue, a clue. A clue, a clue. From now on, we're just going to have to do Blue's Clues. Because I don't remember what any of these things mean, but a clue, a clue. Finally, they come upon the graves of Harry's parents. Their grave says, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Again, Harry, a clue, a, a clue. clue. A clue, Harry wonders, isn't that a Death Eater idea? Why is that there? Hermione says it doesn't mean defeating death in the way that Death Eaters means it. It means living beyond death. Like, there's something after death. Harry is grief-stricken and thinks, no, they're not alive. They're under the fucking ground and I'm an orphan and everything fucking sucks. He's very sad. He weeps. He briefly wishes he were dead, yeah, which is actually the first time we've ever seen Harry do that. He has an enormous amount of grit. But yeah, there's a moment where he's like, I wish I was under there with them. Oof. Very uncharacteristic. It's an extremely sad fucking chapter. Yes. Sorry to be flip about this. Yeah, it's actually really moving. And we're not doing that justice, but Just go, go read it. Go read it. It's beautiful. It's actually beautifully it's written. It's incredibly affecting. Hermione then takes her wand and conjures a wreath of Christmas roses, which they lay on the grave, and then Hermione and Harry leave the cemetery. And that's what happens in this week's chapters. So very on trend, a fair amount of the first chapter is about meal planning, <laughs> which in this case is not making a bunch of protein-heavy health meals to put into little Tupperwares on Sunday afternoons but actually figuring out how to get enough sustenance to survive. My mother, said Ron one night as they sat in the tent on a riverbank in Wales, can make good food appear out of thin air. He prodded moodily at the lumps of charred grey fish on his plate. Harry glanced automatically at Ron's neck and saw, as he had expected, the golden chain of the Horcrux glinting there. He managed to fight down the impulse to swear at Ron, whose attitude would, he knew, improve slightly when the time came to take off the locket. Your mother can't produce food out of thin air, said Hermione. No one can. Food is the first of the five principal exceptions to Gamp's law of elemental transfigure. Oh, speak English, can't you? Ron said, prizing a fishbone out from between his teeth. It's impossible to make good food out of nothing. You can summon it if you know where it is. You can transform it. You can increase the quantity if you've already got some. Well, don't bother increasing this. It's disgusting, said Ron. Harry caught the fish and I did my best with it. 
I notice I'm always the one who ends up sorting out the food because I'm a girl, I suppose. No, it's because you're supposed to be the best at magic, shot back Ron. This is a really interesting Hermione moment because it's honestly the first time in a real way that she is fully bucked against the kind of expectation that she do all of the unrecognized labor for the group. Yeah. A couple times she's been like, I'm not doing your fucking homework for you. But the expectation that Hermione just sort of de facto provide for everyone is really sexist. And Hermione, for once, is like, this is really sexist. (laughs) Which I enjoy immensely. I mean, you know, Ron does nothing. Yeah, the distribution of labor is highly uneven. I mean, Harry helps out a lot. Harry clearly contributes. Um, Yeah, he catches the fish. He goes to the store when he can. He helps do the protective charms. Ron doesn't even do any of the, like, muggle-repelling charms. But clearly Hermione does the lion's share of just the sort of basics of keeping them alive in these um, camping trip chapters. But also, okay, so God bless Hermione for this work, but she knows Gamp's Law of Elemental Transfiguration, One of the tenets of which is that if you have food, you can multiply it. So why would they not just keep a small amount of their better meals? Like when they have like eggs on toast or or bolognese. bolognese. Why not keep a little bit and just multiply it? Yeah, leftovers should not be a problem for wizards. Just carry a tiny little vial of leftover dinners and multiply them. I don't understand why they have to start from scratch every time once they have procured one kind of food. Maybe Ron is so hungry that he just eats all of it. Like, like has the last bite. And they're like, God damn it, Ron. We needed that was dinner that. tomorrow. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's one of those ways where magic is kind of like broken when you can do anything. Like, she's sort of trying to put some limitations on it. But I don't understand why... Wizards can summon water with the Aguamenti charm, but food is somehow different. Also, what is food? She conjures a bunch of roses in the next chapter. They could eat those. Yeah, it's a fucking plant. Like, does lettuce not count? Whatever magical force controls the w- the universe is like, oh, okay, roses, because that's, that's not in the produce aisle, but uh, you can't conjure lettuce. Yeah. They're not that different. There's edible flowers. Right. Could they conjure an edible flower? Could they conjure something that has nutritional value but that most people don't eat? Like, could they conjure a rat and eat that? You can eat rats. Yeah. So, I mean... What is the... What rule governs what does and doesn't count as food? Yeah. I don't quite... I don't quite get that. And also, I don't, the roses she conjures, are those now permanently in existence? Or are they going to kind of wink out after the spell wears off? Maybe that's the difference. Maybe they could, like, eat those, but there wouldn't be any, like, caloric value to them. That's, so you'd just be, like... That makes more sense to me. Like, they're they're spell roses, so they don't have any... They don't sort of intrinsically exist, I like, guess. Like those fucking birds she conjures that attack Ron. Right, they're not real birds. Yeah, like you couldn't fucking, like, barbecue them or whatever. Yeah. Or maybe you could, but there's no, like, actual substance to them. They wouldn't provide like energy i don't know so this has answered some of our questions but not all transfiguration it's it doesn't make a ton of sense yeah the the rules are pretty inconsistent (laughs) i do think that the obvious solution is make one thing i mean it is literal meal planning yeah just make a fuck ton of one thing and then keep replenishing it by magic so I, i feel hermione's pain here but also 
y'all are missing like a serious meal planning hack. I do like that hunger plays such a major role in governing their days in this chapter because it's such a basic and unmagical problem. It is sort of satisfying that there isn't really a magical solution. They have to deal kind of for the first time with very basic deprivation. Mm -hmm. Not like, oh, there's some sort of scary monster after us, but... We might starve. Literal survival. And it does some interesting things with their three characters because Harry is the only one of them who has ever experienced deprivation. You know, both of them grew up. It's just sometimes you get these really useful glimpses of the fact that Harry grew up unloved and abused and that shaped his worldview in ways that are so subtle. But yeah, Harry's like, oh, I'm actually fine. I used to be starved by my guardians fairly regularly. (laughs) And Ron, meanwhile, who, you know, grew up poor, has some real problems But Ron has literally never been hungry in his life for more than half an hour without somebody satisfying that hunger. And as a result, is a soft boy. Yeah. Maybe because Mrs. Weasley knows that you can clone fucking biscuits. True. Mrs. Weasley does make a little go a long way. And is actually very, very good at... A highly skilled witch. She is. She's really good at the kinds of spells that keep a family alive. But that's also a woman that, like, fucking making sure Ron doesn't fucking starved to death by using her own like unrecognized well not maybe not unrecognized because to Ron the food just appears out of thin air by his mom but she was clearly yeah making a little go a long way yeah she still to this day like just sort of like takes for granted yes he absolutely does even though he speaks very lovingly about you know his mom's like superlative kitchen skills but but he he doesn't really seem to grasp like, the full scope of her abilities. Well, and he tells Hermione, my mom can make food out of nothing. And Hermione's like, you weren't paying attention because yeah. that's not what she was doing. <laughs> well, so anyway, Ron's just completely in the dark about the contributions, like, any women in his life have, like, made toward his basic survival. I think it's that, but I also think it's just that Ron sort of, in a way, Ron actually has exactly the kind of life we should wish for for all people. I don't want to be resentful of the fact that Ron has had a consistently loving family his whole life and has never actually had to, I mean, he's felt poor. Like, he's obviously oh, yeah, yeah. been in situations where... And he's dealt more with, like, he's dealt with this, definitely dealt with the social stigma of it, which is totally, which is a real thing. Right, but he has a family that has never allowed him to suffer, you know, hunger or or cold or, you know, he's he's always been incredibly well taken care of. And that's not something we should be resentful of Ron for. And he has a family that loves him and takes care of him. And his experiences are real. Oh, yeah, completely. I mean, he's a... They're literally made up, but the experiences... That are portrayed. The experience of shame is a real real experience. I still think Ron is a full fuckboy in these chapters. (laughs) But I don't want to say that because Ron has had parents that have made sure he's never gone hungry, that he's sort of, like, spoiled in some way. No, he has just... It's just a really interesting foil for the kind of upbringing that Harry had because Harry is rich now, mm-hmm. but Harry starved. And Hermione bears up pretty well under these circumstances. Hermione has just so much personal fortitude. And honestly, also it seems like Hermione had really competent parents who taught her how to like fend for herself. Like Hermione among them actually I feel like is the most like well-balanced because she wasn't spoiled. Like, she didn't have somebody who 
just did everything for her all the time like Ron does and obviously she wasn't abused like Harry it seems like her very sensible dentist parents were like you should learn how to scramble eggs (laughs) you know she just was brought up in a very like practical way and as a result in addition to being very smart and good at magic is just a very practical person yeah so I think Hermione was actually really well parented by her absent muggle mom and dad it seems like it, right? She's yeah, totally. She just she has like skills. Mm-hmm. Good for her. She can identify fucking wild mushrooms and scramble eggs and scramble eggs, which neither of these boys can do. No, Harry because nobody ever gave him any food, and Ron because people only ever gave him food. Harry can catch fish by saying "Osseo fish." Come here, fish. <laughs> Come fish. here. Come to me, fish. But I mean, just to sort of round this out, I do appreciate that magic is not a panacea. That the existence of hunger and survival and the need to sort of live in the physical world rears its head in these chapters in a way that's just, you know, a good reminder that fantasy worlds include lots of reality. So let's talk a bit about what the trio overhears from these this, this band on the run. It's an interesting glimpse of what's going on in the wizarding world at large, and it's pretty dark. But there are some glimmers of hope, I think, in the fact that, like, Dirk Cresswell, Ted, and Dean, like, are making, like, a run of it. It's pretty horrifying to see how quickly society seems to have all but collapsed. Yeah, like, it's, this is like this feels almost like post-apocalyptic. Yeah, it with is. roasting fucking salmon by a riverside right. in, like, the country There's that they had to flee. small bands of fugitives all over the country sort of living underground um, for fear of It's like from the road or something, you know? Yeah, it's less that. I mean, it's more like, you know, Anne Frank. Right. Like, it's less like there was some kind of horrible, like, plague that wiped out civilization and more like there's a... a robust resistance movement of people who are oppressed but are fucking making do mm-hmm. and people who are helping them so it's it's pretty upsetting to know that most muggle-borns are now kind of living underground and either on the run or relying on the kindness of purebloods hiding and protecting them including dean who's a teenager alone yeah that's Fucked up. It's really sad. Dean is another one of these characters that's just sort of really like practical and competent and chill. Dean strikes me as a very chill guy. Yeah. He and Ginny get along pretty well until they don't. So anyway, Dean can look out for himself. And he sticks up for Harry Potter. He does, which is great. Which brings us to, it is, it has this very like Tom Sawyer moment where overhearing what people say about you when... They think that you're either obviously not there or potentially like dead is one of the most interesting literary devices to me. I love when characters get to hear what other people say about them when they're not or they think they can't hear them. So this debate over whether to kind of believe in Harry Potter, whether he killed Dumbledore, whether the prophet's telling the truth is very fascinating. And honestly, Harry bears up pretty well hearing some kind of nasty rumors aired. Yeah, fucking Dirk. Well, it shows how effective the misinformation and propaganda campaign is going so far because Dirk Cresswell is fucking persecuted. He's on the run from the Death Eaters and he's like, ah, well, gotta hear both sides still, (laughs) you know? He like kind of thinks maybe Harry is, like maybe Harry killed Dumbledore. Uh, It's 
Yeah, I think the more salient point that all of them are kind of making is regardless of whether Harry did all the things the prophet said, like, where is he? Right. Which it just, for me, it just underscores Harry just never gets the fucking benefit of the doubt. No. Even after everything the wizarding world has seen about him, all of the things he's gone through, all of the times that he's clearly been under much more pressure than he should be and comported himself admirably, people are still like, oh, he bounced. Like, obviously Harry Potter didn't just run away. Like, if you know anything about his character. And Dean, to his credit, is like, no, Harry's, like, doing something. Yeah, it's interesting. Harry really can't win. No, In the public eye, ever. And you get that, this is one reason I'm a cursed child defender, because, like, even far in the future after he's triumphed, like, Harry still kind of can't win. Well, people's skepticism and their criticism of him, yeah, just, like, transcends any great deeds he can ever accomplish. And the idea that most of the Wizarding World thinks he just ran away is really depressing considering how terrible his life is right now as he tries to fucking save them all. I know, he's like, God damn it, I'm eating nothing but mushrooms. I'm looking for these fucking horcruxes. (laughs) Nobody (laughs) believes that I'm, like, even trying. I like, though, that the Quiddler has become this underground resistance mag, though. Shows the importance of independent media. Yeah, Hashtag solidarity with Deadspin. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) Shows the importance of independent media and uh, having diverse media, you know? Can't, monopolies, they're bad in general, I would say. So Media as an apparatus of the state. Profit's been knocked out. The Quibbler's the only place you can go. It's true. Although Xenophilius doesn't end up going out in quite the blaze of glory. You know, for now though, for now... You know, it's a worthy namesake. (laughs) Bless the quibbler. The other thing we learn from this conversation is the kind of low-level revolt that's going on against the Death Eater administration, like, basically everywhere. And, like, in Hogwarts, there's Dumbledore's army uh, is causing, like, as much chaos as they can. And then they are clearly, they're trying to take over Gringotts, it sounds like, but... In true Death Eater fashion, they're overlooking the fact that, like, goblins have agency. And where do you two fit in? I uh, had the impression the goblins were for you-know-who, on the whole. You had a false impression, said the higher voice of the goblins. We take no sides. This is a wizard's war. How come you're in hiding, then? I deemed it prudent, said the deeper-voiced goblin. Having refused what I considered an impertinent request, I could see that my personal safety was in jeopardy. What did they ask you to do? asked Ted. Duties ill-befitting the dignity of my race, replied the goblin, his voice rougher and less human as he said it. I am not a house elf. What about you, Griphook? Similar reasons, said the higher-voiced goblin. Gringotts is no longer under the sole control of my race. I recognize no wizarding master. He added something under his breath in gobbledygook, and Gornok laughed. And I really like that the goblins are like, we don't give a fuck about any of you. This is totally disinteresting to us, except insofar as it's very annoying that you're taking our shit and driving (laughs) us out of our jobs. 
there's lots of similarities with overlooking the house elves. Yeah, like, I agree. You know. Also, but, it's nice to be back with Griphook, who obviously we're going to have a lot of fun with going forward, but he's a really great non-wizard character. I love a good anti-hero. Yeah, Griphook is a is a wonderful anti-hero, and I really enjoy it when we get to meet non-wizarding magical creatures and get the perspective of like the world is bigger than like humans fighting each other that's you know the centaurs are really great in early books for that when they're just like y'all this is small potatoes compared to sort of like the history of time and space (laughs) and obviously the house elves are very are just sort of wonderful characters but I'm, i'm i'm glad the goblins are in the picture now they're fun so gringotts is losing some of its independence Although, not without a fight. And not without a fight. Gringotts is going to obviously be the site of a very exciting literal fight. I wish I understood more about how goblins came to be the bankers to the wizarding world. Uh, anti-Semitism? <laughs> well, I mean, low-key. A- anyway, we will have much more to say about goblins and wizard economics going forward. But I like having goblins in the picture. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, and then there's this fucking thing with Ron, which is obviously the most important thing that happens in these chapters, and we're an hour in and we haven't even gotten to it yet, so I'm having a panic attack. But, Ron. What the actual fuck, Ron? I defended him earlier because I don't want to be only a Ron hater, and I want to give him credit where credit is due when he's being, like, normal. But, Jesus Christ, like, get some emotional regulation skills. Oh, man. The most contrarian I can go on Ron here is that I understand that he's under a lot of pressure. It sucks that they've got, like, one more fucking quest item that they have to chase after. But it's just, Ron is the only one who, wearing the Horcrux, makes him, like, non-functional. Harry and Hermione just both have a lot more grit And yeah, just like emotional regulation skills. Like it's like those two have been to therapy. (laughs) Obviously Harry like desperately needs to go to therapy. Hermione, I continue to feel, is the most generally well-regulated character in these books. And Ron cannot deal with emotional discomfort. He's bad at dealing with physical discomfort, specifically hunger. But he does, we talked about this, he does take a physical beating. Like he holds up okay when he gets wounded. But any interpersonal conflict, any emotional discomfort, he goes off the fucking handle. Like, he he is not well-equipped to deal with uncertainty or fear or disagreement or any of this stuff. He just completely loses it. Yeah. You know, yeah, like, even they he, all have to wear the Horcrux. Like, only Ron shuts down. I know, but even when he's not wearing a demon necklace, he has had moments like this in the books before. Nothing yeah. this extreme. But, you know, the whole deal with Crumb in Goblet of Fire. He, like, fucking lost his mind. Or Yeah, I mean, he's hot-headed. He is, despite the fact that he grew up poor, I do think he's spoiled. I think he's, in very specific ways, spoiled. I think he had parents who, in a loving way, shielded him from a lot of kinds of discomfort. And never really learned good conflict resolution skills. And he has all these like weird brothers that he has these passive aggressive relationships with. And none of the Weasleys besides Ginny deal with conflict super well. 
Like Fred and George just make jokes. I don't know, Bill and Charlie have kind of bounced. He just hasn't learned great conflict resolution, despite being from a huge family. Yeah. What do you think plot-wise this does for us? I don't, do you like this move on Rowling's part? To kind of blow up the trio right here. I think this had to happen eventually. Yeah, I think so too. Their perfect symmetry of their relationship, or the sort of the perfect like wholeness of these relationships, just I think it's very realistic that it would buckle under pressure. And I think she's been building Ron up as the character to give into that pressure for the entire series. Like this is not surprising. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's fucked up that Ron tries to make Hermione choose. And sort of has the, like, romantic angle to kind of, like, lord over her. But to Hermione's credit, she's like, we're saving the world here. So (laughs) I'm good. I'm good. And is very, very sad. But again, like, handles it like a champ. Definitely. Do you think it's kind of derivative that we've got this fucking Horcrux necklace and it bums out and alters the personality of whoever's wearing it? It just really reminds me of... Like Frodo and Sam lugging the one ring all over Middle Earth in Lord of the Rings. Oh yeah, I mean it's obviously derivative of that. But also, I mean, I don't know, everything's kind of derivative. Like objects that hold like evil. Like J.R. Tolkien didn't invent that Right, no, I get it. Yeah, he's not the inventor of the cursed item. But uh, it really... It's strongly reminiscent of that because the way they wear it around the neck. Yes, uh, it is. It really is. And I mean, you know, it serves like a... There's like kind of symbolism is in it. It's this fucking like albatross around their necks and it is like symbolic of the weight and dread that's weighing on them because of this quest. Even though, why don't you just take it off and like put a sticking charm on it or something? Like, I don't know if they need to be wearing this thing per se. Well, even the fact that you just said albatross proves my point that fucking J.R.R. Tolkien didn't come up with that because that is an entirely different literary illusion. That is, this is true. Like the albatross is from Rime of the Ancient Mariner. (laughs) So clearly that is pre One Ring. Yes. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's thematically useful. I do think they could take it off when they're just the three of them in the tent together. Although they've, you know... To be fair, they have had several moments where they had to disapparate immediately no, with no time to do great any preparation. Okay. Like the the split second it would take to like grab the Horcrux. I mean, they cannot lose it. Here I am doubting Harry Potter and it turns out he's got the right fucking idea. Like, so maybe this is the one smart thing they do do. They physically like, they have to never be in a situation where it could get left behind and they a a couple of times they're like we cannot deal with this anymore we're going to lose our minds and they take it off briefly yeah but for the most part yeah I think it makes sense they know that they might have to flee in a literal instant and they can't they can't be far away from it they have to take it with them it's also kind of like the mood slime from Ghostbusters too I mean yeah because this is a this is a device yeah I I don't I don't entirely take your point that it's just like the ring. I know. Okay. Well, I mean, whatever. I I don't care that much that it's like derivative or whatever because a book like this whole book is like kind of a shuffling the deck of like fantasy tropes and that's kind of what makes it awesome because you, you know. Recognize stuff. Yeah. And you like do little. I actually though like it's derivative in only in so far as world building only has so many 
component parts available in the universe. Like I don't find it more derivative than any other kind of like non-entirely realistic fiction. It's also derivative of like fucking boarding school novels. Like I don't like the idea that it's just like kind of bad Lord of the Rings for children. Like I don't think that's useful. Oh I don't think that's true either. I was just uh... It Everything did, is it reshuffled. Did, it did just strongly remind me of that aspect of of the books. Yeah, I think that's you know? fair. But I think I think that's fine. I mean, there's fucking tropes that are just sort of endemic to literature, like Joseph like Campbell shit, and it's how you like rearrange and retell. That's interesting. Yeah, I just I feel like there is this kind of current of criticism where if anything resembles anything, it's like stolen. Which doesn't, I mean, everything is stolen from, like, the Bible or, like, Homer or, like, <laughs> like in the Western canon, let me say. Obviously, there are other, like, fully realized sort of canonical inventions that are derivative of other ancient texts. Yeah. But, like, it all fucking comes from somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And, like, I don't know, like, I'm reading, I'm actually reading a very good book called Circe right now by, I think her name is Madeline Miller which is like a very beautiful contemporary like retelling of the myth of the witch Circe. Her island is one of the places that Odysseus gets like stranded on his big odyssey as it were. (laughs) And it just reminds me like as I'm reading this book I'm like oh basically like all of western literature comes from the building blocks here. Whatever like it's all it's all from something so that doesn't bother me. No, yeah, it doesn't bother me either. I was just, it is uh, more, it is similar enough to the like very granular experiences of the ring that I get, I get that criticism. I guess that makes sense to me. I mean, it's sort of like the Lord of the Rings plot, but there's like seven fucking rings that they have to like take down. Isn't that true in the Lord of the Rings? Aren't there a lot of rings? Yeah, but there's only one that matters. Okay, well, there's a lot of rings that matter in this one. So there's like rings, and then there's also like bracelets. It's just a lot and of jewelry. Just like a lot of you know? shit that they have to find. She read Lord of the Rings, and she was like, "What if we just blew this out? We had more jewelry." Um, and in that way, Ron has a point because he's like, <laughs> "Are you really adding another fucking thing?" And then wait till Ron finds out about the Deathly Hallows oh because then we're gonna have two full sets of this bullshit. So many side to quests. pursue. Speaking of which, Ron's criticism that Harry like doesn't have any fucking idea what he's doing and there's no plan. Valid? Not valid. Um, like I said, I understand his frustration, but also it's like as Harry sort of points out. You fucking signed up for this, dude. And I this think is it's, not. This did not have guaranteed success. Was not fucking guaranteed. And another thing that Harry makes the point about is he's like they clearly assumed that he was kind of hiding the ball from them and was going to tell them the real plan once they got started. And he's like, I was so straightforward with you. <laughs> I told you and told you and told you that this is literally all I know. Dumbledore set this whole thing up. He didn't tell me shit. It's clearly Dumbledore's fault. Also, here's the thing that's infuriating to me. Harry has multiple ideas that fully bear out. And they're like, nah. Like, he's like, probably everything's at Hogwarts. <laughs> and they're like, nah. And he's like, I think it might be important to go to Godric's Hollow. And he's, they're like, nah. So it's like, Harry is offering solutions. Like, Harry is a solutions-oriented individual. It's one of the core values at my workplace. So we talk about solutions orientation a lot. Harry is fucking solutions oriented and every time they're like or we could just 
sit in yeah. this tent and bitch at each other. Fucking Ron and Hermione aren't thought partnering with them. Oh my god. <laughs> I hate that. Yeah, let's use more of my email speak. Um, but they're not. He's like, I really think there's more shit at Hogwarts. And they're like, Mer, probably there isn't. And he's like, okay, well, you offer a suggestion then. Let's like, go, Harry let's go has to the offered. Orphanage instead, yeah. But if that was Harry's idea, like, Harry has offered lots of suggestions and he gets shut down. Also, he's like, I think this thief thing is important. And they're like, no, that can't be important. And he's like, well, it's all Voldemort is thinking about. So there's something there. And again, they're just ignoring his insights and then complaining that he doesn't have any ideas. Very irritating. I would be very mad if I were Harry, actually. He's like being more chill than I would be. I blame this fucking cursed necklace. I blame Dumbledore. And Dumbledore. Honestly, yeah. This is all Dumbledore's fucking fault. Oh my god. At the end of the day. Ugh, all of it. All of it. Even the Grindelwald shit is Dumbledore's fault. All of it is Dumbledore's fault. Quick question about wearing the, the Horcrux locket that I think a listener brought up. So if this was you, thank you. And I'm sorry that I'm your name is slipping my mind. It's Jillian. It's oh, a listener. Jillian. How come Umbridge can cast a Patronus while she's wearing it? I don't know. Maybe because torturing people is her happy place. Yeah, I think that's probably my answer is that she actually derives joy from suffering. So the Horcrux probably doesn't put her in all that bad a mood because her sort of mood board and the Horcrux mood board are pretty similar. Yeah, so that makes Umbridge even more fucked up. Yeah, in a way it seems like it strengthens her actually. So like maybe if you have like Horcrux energy already, you actually derive some power from it. But maybe if you already have like some some very like Voldy vibes, I mean, you get more powerful. She's pretty values aligned. She is. And she really, I bet that what she imagines when she casts a Patronus is hurting people. Ugh. Which is really, really dark because that's like your innermost sanctum. Like that's where you go deep to find the thing that is truly meaningful to you. That's grim. It's really bad. We spent the whole time on the first chapter of these two, but the Godric's Hollow chapter is really beautiful and moving, but also very simple. Like not a ton happens. It's mostly sort of an emotional landscape chapter. It's a really nice sort of capsule because it, I mean, we get some a clue, a clue moments, but it doesn't really advance the plot so much as it like sort of grounds us in Harry's like lived reality. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. A horrible thought came to him, and with it a kind of panic. Isn't that a Death Eater idea? Why is that there? It doesn't mean defeating death in the way the Death Eaters mean it, Harry, said Hermione, her voice gentle. It means, you know, living beyond death, living after death. But they were not living, thought Harry. They were gone. The empty words could not disguise the fact that his parents' mouldering remains lay beneath snow and stone, indifferent, unknowing, and tears came before he could stop them, boiling hot, then instantly freezing on his face, and what was the point in wiping them off or pretending? He let them fall, his lips pressed hard together, looking down at the thick snow, hiding from his eyes the place where the last of Lily and James lay. Bones now, surely, or dust, not knowing or caring that their living sons stood so near, his heart still beating, alive because of their sacrifice and close to wishing at this moment that he was sleeping under the snow with them. 
thing I really like about these books is the fact of Harry's orphanhood is never just this device to remove attachments from him so he can go on, like, incredible adventures. It's not just... It's never, like, a cheap plot device. All seven books are very much rooted in the emotional reality of this loss, and Harry's reckoning with that is always at the heart of these stories, and and his experience of that grief kind of changes and matures and develops in interesting ways throughout throughout these books and uh i don't i respect that yeah i, I agree it, with that i think it gives them real emotional heft i do think a lot of orphanhood literature has that sort of happy-go-lucky like wouldn't it be cool if there were no grown-ups in charge sort of vibe um i think of something like the boxcar children and to be fair they sort of get a parental figure back but or like Luke Skywalker doesn't spend a ton of time like thinking about his dead mom. Obviously, he has uh, daddy issues. Right, but we only find that out kind of late anyway. In the second <laughs> movie, but you know. Halfway through. But yeah, Harry's, the texture of Harry's experience of grief and loss and loneliness is very finely wrought. And you're right, it does change and he really grows up within that. So this this scene of him sort of envisioning what home could have meant, he has this very strong feeling, this very ex- like this very intense emotional pull to Godric's Hollow, like he is going home. But he there's this beautiful scene where he's envisioning what home could have been if Voldemort didn't kill his family. And yeah, so Harry envisioning this this life that could have been his, this home that could have been his, is really heartbreaking. And it also makes me really angry when Ron says the thing about well, you don't even have a family that you have to be worried about anymore. And Harry's like, fuck you. Like, that's the whole deal. Yes, I don't. They're dead. <laughs> but also, I don't think that's true. Like, Harry does, I mean, and I think that's a real misunderstanding of what grief is. Because Harry does have a family that he is doing these things for. Just because they're dead doesn't mean that Harry's quest isn't intimately bound up in grieving his parents. So the idea that Harry is very, is like sort of cut loose in the world and separated from the bonds and the responsibilities of being a member of a family is really short-sighted because his whole life is devoted to sort of like correcting this ache. Like why would he be going after Voldemort except that they, they, Voldemort fucking killed his parents. Like his parents are central to this mission as opposed to like him being unencumbered by familial relationships. He's more encumbered in a lot of ways. He has this freighted energy of there's somebody whose lives I have to like avenge. Well said. Thank you. So fucking Ron just doesn't get it. Ron says fucked up things about Harry's parents a lot. I actually, it makes me really mad. I feel like we could tally up. People are dicks about Harry's parents. To be fair, people are dicks about grief. Yeah. You know, people don't handle... The idea that you could like lose everything very well because people are afraid of that happening to themselves. Yeah. There's this podcast called Terrible Thanks for Asking that a a writer named Nora McInerney does and she was widowed very young after like just having had a child. And like one of the things, so basically the podcast is just about like what horrible thing has happened to you and it's very upsetting. But I feel like one of the themes is like, yeah, people are very, like, they feel real anger at the idea that they have to cope with your loss because your loss means that they could have the same kind of loss. So Harry's level of grief really scares people, including someone like Ron who, 
you know, can't imagine losing his mom and dad, obviously. All those excellent points aside, it's fucking weird that Harry did not know there was a war memorial to him. I know. Nobody ever bothered to mention, like, hey, there's a big-ass statue of you. <laughs> if you're interested. Nobody tells Harry anything. It's such a theme from Harry's life. No grown-ups ever bother to sort of tell him about his past in any meaningful way. Like, he gets these random tidbits. Well, there's the funny meme that a lot of people have shared with us. I forget which book it is, but it's just Dumbledore saying, ah, yes. I didn't tell you that, or I forgot to tell you that. And it says, like, Harry Potter in one sentence. Yeah, <laughs> basically. But, yeah, one of the things nobody ever mentioned was, like, there's, ba- there's like, a fucking, like, Washington monument of your family. Because <laughs> isn't it an obelisk, and then it transforms mm-hmm. into the statue if you're, yeah. uh, presumably, if you're a wizard? Yeah. Interesting. It's like they've re... They've, like... It's a, They've co-opted this World War One-like monument. It's honestly a cool enchantment. Like, yeah. I think that that scene is really visually interesting. I'm shocked the Death Eaters haven't ripped this thing out yet. Yeah, actually, that's interesting. Especially since they changed the statue in the Ministry of Magic. Because the Death Eaters understand the importance of public art and public history. Yep. And they know that revising... Our monuments goes a really long way into revising how we think about what has happened in our past. Yes. So not maybe... that that has any parallels. <laughs> maybe the Death Eaters just can't see this thing, or I mean, who the fuck knows? Um, who's your unsung hero? My unsung hero is Griphook and Gorunk Grunt Gor- Grunk Grunky. <laughs> Gronkowski? Who the fuck? Rob Gronkowski, (laughs) the goblin. I can't remember. Gornuck. Gornuck. I just respect that, you know, working for Gringotts, Death Eaters come and start, like, changing how business is done, and they're like, fuck this, we're out, bouncing. There is sort of a, kind of like a nuns in the Sound of Music moment, where they're like, it's not a real sword. We're not going to mention it. (laughs) Like, we've, we haven't, like, you know, shot any Nazis, but we've sure inconvenienced them. <laughs> the, the goblins aren't nuns, though. I do, I also like the moment where Ted is like, aren't you guys with Voldemort? And they're like, why the fuck would you even think that? Like, is it because we're weird looking? <laughs> yeah. Does, do we look evil-ish? <laughs> Which is basically what Ted is saying. Yeah. He's like, you seem dark and they're like that's rude frankly we don't take kindly to that that's fucking rude my unsung hero is phineas nigelis phineas black who is just like here for the tea like they summon him that one time and he tells them about the sort of quest of the dumbledore's army god bless them to steal the sword and then he's like i'm never coming back you guys are super rude and then he's like pretty often he's like hey (laughs) <laughs> what's going on here he love he lives for that just petty bullshit yeah he loves to gossip and despite i mean he probably knows that he's like feeding harry potter like key information on snape i also wonder what phineas knows about snape i have no idea like I my can't question tell. is does phineas like have the full picture because i would think yes Phineas isn't a Death Eater. And Phineas has been in 
the room with where it happens with Dumbledore, like having those conversations. Yeah, Yeah. I think Phineas knows, but he doesn't want like he needs to keep Harry needs to be like kept in the dark until like the very end. Oh yeah, no, I also don't think Phineas has any interest in helping Harry. He just likes to hang out and talk shit. (laughs) And I like I feel like that's like fully my energy. And I really, really like Phineas just showing up to talk shit. Phineas is the Slytherin we deserve. Yeah, Phineas is an amazing Slytherin. He is honestly, he's like not even a character. He's a literal painting. Or he's like. But he's a true fave. My life is just sort of boring. I live in a fucking painting. Like, let's see how this plays out. (laughs) He's just got, he's got a good sort of like, he's like a true chaotic neutral. And I, I just fully enjoy him. Also, chilling with Harry and Hermione is probably better than like talking to Snape about I don't know whatever fucking shit God Snape is just gloomy he probably just sits there like quietly sort of like stirring his pensive and looking like a bat looking at old pictures of Lily Potter no he probably doesn't even do that it's probably not safe for him to even have that in his office that's true no his memories though oh like in his his pensive pensive. yeah so yeah Phineas is probably like Severus Snape is fucking boring and glum. <laughs> and I just like need a little bit more lively conversation in my life. Like you guys seem to have it. I love him. Yeah. Phineas is like, Severus, have you been this boring all the time? And Severus is like, always. Hell yeah. We'll get there. Very, very good. This week's episode is brought to you by Historical Godric's Hollow. When you're here, you're wizarding family. Yeah. Have we done that? No, Have I Have we like done it. an Olive Garden no. uh, take? Uh, you, can you it's leave worth me recycling. in saying it? I will leave you in saying it. It's good. Uh, the audiobook clips that you heard are courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. They are from Jim Dale's performance of Harry Potter in the Deathly Hallows, including Jim Dale inventing entirely new voices for the five pages in which Harry and Hermione are disguised as random muggles. So he is earning his residuals from this performance you can you can subscribe to this podcast wherever it is you like to do that we're on spotify we're on apple podcasts we're on all the podcatchers if you listen on apple podcasts would you be so kind as to leave us a rating and review just you know to say hey we appreciate them they're nice usually you can also find us on social media at Quibbler Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can send us an eowl, quibblerpodcast at gmail.com. And you can sign up for our very fun newsletter, which Alex writes, which is at tinyletter.com slash quibblerpodcast for all your owl news and book recommendations and other shit. Next time, we will be reading the chapters called Bethilda's Secret and The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore. So we'll talk to you then. Thanks, amigos. But you can make a brilliant Patronus, protested Ron when Harry arrived back at the tent empty-handed. What happened? You were off out there. I'm having issues. It's my wand. It's not working properly. Oh, 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 oh. Lots of men have issues with their wands. Even me. But now, there's help. Look at that symbol, she said, pointing to the top of a page. Above what Harry assumed was the title of the story, 
Being unable to read runes, he could not be sure, there was a picture of what looked like a triangular eye, its pupil crossed with a vertical line. A clue! A clue! All along I thought it was a picture of an eye, but I don't think it is. It's been inked in. Look, somebody's drawn it there. It isn't really part of the book. Look at that. Those shapes go together to make the clue. You are good. So this clue is drawings. We need our handy-dandy notebook. <laughs>